Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with the biggest podcast group I've ever had on a podcast. There are 14 people uh, in this episode. Uh, just kidding, only five. We're here to talk <laughs> about distributed compute. And yes, uh, starting with you, Danny, can you please introduce yourself, why you're so excited about about the space, and what specifically you're working on within it? Hey, I'm Danny. I, people have been trying to build this for 25 years, but until we had machine machine payments with crypto, uh, it wasn't possible. So really excited to see what happens here. Hi, I'm Greg. I'm the founder CEO of Overclock Labs, the company behind Akash Network. And Akash is a decentralized network for provisioning, scaling, and securing computational workloads with a on-chain auction marketplace for off-chain container deployment, suitable to run uh, most uh, modern-day workloads, right? The open marketplace provides an on-chain censorship-resistant procurement mechanism for off-chain highly scalable internet. Uh, so, yeah, so my name is Chandler. Uh, I am the co-founder and CEO of uh, Anchor Network. Basically, Anchor Network is a distributed computing platform, not only leveraging uh, cryptography primitives, but also uh, trusted hardware, you know, especially you know, at, at this stage, uh, Intel SGX. Uh, we're looking uh, into you know, other options, you know, such as ARM Trust Zone on uh, mobile devices. And then you know, a very interesting fact that about, about our company is uh, we're registered as a public benefit corporation. So uh, here to you know, uh, definitely uh, benefit the public, for sure. Hi, my name is uh, Daniel Desjardins. I'm a professor of physics up in Canada. I've had a passion for innovation and discovery uh, since very early on. And um, my research is very compute hungry, uh, like everyone else's. So the idea of bringing distributed compute, uh, leveraging web technologies that puts it in the hand of absolutely everyone from uh, tablets all the way up to uh, businesses with enterprise web servers. Everyone's able to participate in this type of uh, scalable network. So we're uh, we're boosting um, scientific research first, compute, and moving towards other fields there in the future. Can you guys help us understand why do we need distributed compute? Like, why isn't AWS good enough? Amazon is great. Uh, I love Amazon. And Google as well. The, the way the system is set up uh, right now with the centralized model, it's not Amazon's fault or Google's fault per se. Incentivize is not necessarily elements that are great for society. For example, with, with, with the current market share that's being gained by these three providers, effectively creates oligopoly, right? It's not their fault, it's just the way the system is created. And by introducing a complementary technologies that can address these concerns we have with society, is I think all our all our goals sitting here in this uh, podcast. Amazing, and so I can already write uh, a program in Solidity and run it on Ethereum. Why do we also need decentralized compute? Like, what can you do that Solidity and an EVM can't? Yeah, so I think you know, uh, you know, there, you know, yeah, current, uh, you know, uh, Ethereum VM has a lot of problems for sure. Uh, it cannot support uh, generic computing; it's very slow. Uh, it's replicated on all nodes. And then it's very expensive in terms of gas. I think you know Ethereum, the the EVM should be uh, used only to manage trustless interaction, um, and actual computing should occur um, in a in an off chain environment. Right. So to you know 
China's point, the smart contract is essentially a computer uh, protocol intended to digitally facilitate, verify, or enforce negotiation negotiation or performance of a contract, right? It was pro- first proposed by Nick Sabo, who coined the term in 94, and it's extremely powerful programming paradigm that allows for performance of credible transactions by uh, disintermediating the need for a third party, right? Like anything, it's a, it's a programming pattern. And blockchain is a perfect use case for smart contracts because it provides a audit for auditability through through immutability in a decentralized execution runtime. Like any pattern, smart contracts have its limitations, and that's why we feel it's imperative to be uh, unopinionated when it comes to a pattern or a programming framework. And uh, we believe this is critical for blockchain-based ecosystem as it uh, encourages developers to innovate beyond a certain uh, paradigm, right? Yeah. So at Akash, our approach is to address the address decentralization at the lowest possible layer without sacrificing developer productivity. And that comes in the form of containerized deployments for compute memory, bandwidth, and block storage. And Dan and Greg, both of you have uh, kind of live versions out now. What are people already able to do today? What are they already doing today on distributed compute? So in, um, in our network, we're pushing around essentially JSON object files that embody the compute and we've made uh, setting up a, a distributed grid computer as easy as clicking on a link in the browser. So you could literally walk into a computer room, whether it's a school or not, and open a browser, uh, go to our, 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 our website, um, and essentially becomes automatically a node. And I've, I've, I've shown this demonstration to, I believe, you, to a panel of uh, high-performance computing experts at uh, some of the... Um, research institution conferences here in Ontario, what, we, what we're going to achieve by, uh, by pushing around this new language is we avoid the whole Docker container um, paradigm and we're, we're pushing essentially JavaScript to every machine because it's now universally uh, running on pretty much any device, whether it's IoT or enterprise that you can think of. Um, so by being completely device agnostic, uh, we truly can tap into every single uh, compute resource out there. But like, what what are developers already deploying on distributed compute? A lot of people will tell me, oh, this is already, this is kind of a future thing. It's very far out. But clearly, both of you are running um, like current betas. So what are people using it for? So right now, uh, as proof of concept, we are doing two pilot projects that currently run. There's uh, electromagnetics uh, research, um, and we've turned it into a template where now researchers like myself who aren't JavaScript experts can just modify the template to do what they need. And then they push the job and they don't have to think about where and when and how it gets done. The results just come back. So that's actively running. And we have another application called DiskFit. And it's literally taking images of galaxies and uh, by fitting uh, light curves is able to reconstruct the matter density profiles and extract information about uh, dark matter, the presence of dark matter. So it really helps us answer questions about the structure of the large scale universe. And that code is ready. It runs. Uh, right now, we're finishing our, uh, our latest implementation of a module server that's going to allow us to deploy at large scale with uh, some of our partner data centers um, in this closed beta. I actually have a question for, for, uh, for Dan. Uh, I think, uh, how, how do you guys deal with storage? And then what's your plan in the future? Because, you know, because we're doing this distributed computing network as well. And then for sure, we have to worry about storage. And then we're looking into different options, Filecoin, we're looking at uh, uh, Sciacoin as well. So, you know, what's your plan and then what's your take on this, I guess? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's one of the bigger challenges. So we're looking at a good data sharding strategy right now. 
Um, it's on the roadmap and we've discussed a couple of strategies, but we haven't selected the optimal one yet. That's going to come out a little bit more. So right now, uh, when we, actually a couple of months ago, we were doing quasi no data, high compute. So simulation type problems, Monte Carlo or detecting hidden Markov processes, things like that. Uh, but we're now with this, this application, that's sort of like the next level that actually requires some IO to about 20 megabytes. And that's handled very easily by the network. But as we want to scale to do genomics, which require files that are uh, about 256 gigabytes in size, or if we want to handle 15 terabytes per second produced by the Square Kilometer Array, which is a space telescope state-of-the-art coming online within the next one or two years, uh, we're going to need to develop increasing uh, strategies. We have an advantage in that we're, we're working tightly, actually, with consortium universities uh, and so we can do data sharding across uh, devices on existing and known networks. But this, again, is uh, active uh, uh, active discussion on our end. Yeah, I think because uh, I think in the end, there's, you know, three parts to compute the network and the storage. Right. And then I see, you know, a trend where, um, you know, one purchase uh, the infrastructure as a service and then builds its own cloud uh, on top, you know, uh, using the container, you know, Docker technology or uh, orchestration, and then it relies on a few services for non-key competencies, right? And then I think, uh, and then also, you know, I, I'm, I'm just generally curious because we're looking at this uh, very thoroughly and then we're trying to compare ourselves as well to uh, Elastic uh, MapReduce. And then I think, you know, uh, we don't really see a bright future in a uh, platform as a service such as EMR because of its uh, data locking, right? I think long term, we should, I guess, start a paradigm shift on the existing uh, container technology and uh, uh, start to look at, you know, elsewhere. Right. Yeah. So we, we, we're taking a much lower level approach by containerizing workloads. In effect, you can run any workload that can run in a container on Amazon on Akash, right? So there are, the way we look at these things from a use case standpoint is in two sort of tracks, right? One is explorationally. Uh, what, what, are, what are we building towards, uh, towards the next five years? Next thing is exploitationally. So what are, can we exploit the current market need and can we capitalize on that, right? When it comes to exploration, uh, one of the concepts we're working is unstoppable web. Right, unstoppable web is censorship resistant uh, web that cannot be taken down by any in individual other than the beholder of the key. Right, so by combining other protocols such as Handshake or an Orchid and, and us together, we can create an infrastructure where the uh, DNS and discovery is uh, decentralized, as well as the runtime is decentralized, as well as the uh, network, how the packets are out is decentralized as well. But from an exploitation case, uh, looking at the current market need, people are using Akash Testnet to do load testing, performance testing, CI CD pipelines, machine learning workloads. And these tend to be low friction use cases that increase adoption, right? And this goes back to uh, why we're doing this, uh, why we're focused on the use cases. It goes back to how Amazon was started in 2007. Mm -hmm. If you look at when AWS entered a very crowded market, uh, you know, dominated by Rackspace and GoGrid and such uh, you know, others, they've, they've introduced a very low-hanging fruit, something that's so simple that nobody wants to deal with, and that happened to be object storage on an API, right? And, uh, and we believe uh, that low friction was very critical for AWS adoption. We're taking the same model by introducing performance testing. 
And their performance testing today is broken on the cloud, especially if you're trying to do there the other blockchains like Solana and whatnot, trying to do performance testing. The moment you they detect a, a decent amount of traffic from a single IP, they shut down, right? So performance testing is extremely laborious to do on the cloud. So we're taking that use case and sort of like made that a first use case, and which is not a not a small market. It's about $10 billion market, right? And then we moved on to CICD pipelines, which is about $30 billion market. And my machine learning workloads is about $60 billion market. So that's how we're looking at go-to-market. I would love to go back to Chandler's question about platform as a service. Right now, if you use AWS or if you use Google Cloud, you, you not only get compute, you also get all these ancillary services like CDN and firewall and key management and HSM. How do you see this kind of playing out in Web3 world? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, I think right now we're so uh, mostly in the web 2.0. I think, you know, all of us, um, if not you guys, <laughs> at least for us, I think uh, we're trying to integrate ourselves into this existing paradigm and then to also, you know, make ourselves um, ready uh, for, the ne- for, you know, for the next paradigm, paradigm change. So, you know, that's our take on this. And then, you know, we, you know, and then, you know, for, you know, and just to answer your previous question about uh, existing Google Cloud and Amazon Web Service, I think, you know, we are currently in a niche market where we don't have to compete ourselves with with them uh, directly. It's like, you know, you have Uber and then you also have a taxi and then also you have your own car and then they all target uh, different needs. uh, And then you also have hotel and Airbnb which um, serve different purposes. So uh, I think in the, in the long run, at least in three years, I wouldn't see too much of a conflict of uh, distributed network versus uh, Google and Amazon Web Service. What do the rest of you think? That's quite interesting. Right. So it's an ocean to boil, right? You want to come to Amazon, there are what, 200 services and about 18 regions, right? Last I checked. The, the way we can attack this problem is by obviously by attracting these projects. I think we have a much bigger incentive to attract them than Amazon, Google, and Microsoft besides the market size, right? And why I say that is because if you look at the majority of the revenue that comes to the centralized cloud providers happen to be from these these value-added services, right? It's like burgers and fries model. Give you cheap compute, but we make money on the on the uh, value-added services. And these value-added services are usually white-label open-source projects, right? Take, for example, Google Data Proc. Google Data Proc is essentially a Databricks Park that's white labeled and sold as a as a product. And Databricks is the company behind Spark, right? And Databricks is not very really happy about it because they can't compete on price with Google, and they have to settle for other other uh, mechanisms to 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 make money. And by creating an ecosystem that in, that makes it frictionless for these projects to be part of a decentralized network is a key. So with Akash, what we're doing is first, we're going to focus on base level resources, compute bandwidth memory and CPU, and use the token to pay for these services and evolve to a, to a mechanism where we can incorporate ecosystem, right? And create incentive structures for the ecosystem players, such as Google Data Proc or, or uh, Redis Labs, Redis, right? By staying hyper-focused on, on developer, on the use cases and bringing in services or encouraging services to be integrated in an open manner and transparent manner that fits with the governance model plan attack on this. And once we create the, once we hit that level of sort of like mass criticality when it comes to adoption, that creates a better uh, incentives when it comes to size of the market as well for these projects. How important do you think it is to build a compute product that is compelling enough for Web2 companies and projects to use versus just building for the Web3 market? So I believe uh, it's a, 
good projects, uh, successful projects always know how to exploit and explore, right? It's a good right. balance between these both, right? Uh, you need to be able to exploit to survive and explore to stay, to avoid disruption, right? So still it's a balance uh, to attract the current market opportunity as well as build for the future. I think mathematically it's about 33%, but that's not, that's probably why mathematicians are not exactly successful business people, but, but that's my take on it. Yeah, I think I think for uh, scientific research and for enterprise, the, these are two completely different takes because, uh, like I said earlier with you, uh, Dan, uh, about uh, the current Boeing project, the top contributor over the twenty uh, the past twenty years contributed over four point four million U.S. dollars worth of cloud computing resources, uh, and then that only can happen in scientific research. First of all. They, they don't care that much about uh, data privacy, but for for enterprises, especially for example, a pharmaceutical company, they care so much about their uh, core data that they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing them uh, in a in a distributed network unless there's a guarantee for their privacy. So I think you know that's why you know at Anchor, you know, we're trying to um, leverage this uh, trusted uh, execution environment model where you know we not only protect the integrity of the communication but we also ensure the confidentiality and the privacy of the end users so you know in the end what we're trying to do is combine uh, what we've already achieved with scientific re- research with uh, at the end enterprise approach so that you know we can uh, in, in a long run we can succeed you know just uh, just like Greg said exploit and uh, explore I certainly agree that uh, privacy, being able to protect sensitive information uh, like um, patient data in hospitals and whatnot, what we're, the approach we're taking is to create the core protocol that does compute, distributed compute. Uh, we're building a, a secure network overlay that sandwiches on top of it, layers on top of the stack uh, and allows for uh, secure compute. This is where we would interface with tier four data centers or known trusted compute infrastructure, or even better yet, setting up, and this is, these are active discussions right now, uh, setting up a secure closed compute network within a hospital itself, leveraging every desktop, unused desktop in space uh, overnight or during the day whenever the screensaver becomes active. Like that, sensitive data doesn't even leave the premises. Our protocol could even link this, uh, these, these hospitals together and sort of whitelisting each other and uh, sharing compute workload that way. So uh, during one person's peak in a certain time zone, it's someone else's low to the west. And so they can sort of exchange, go back and forth. So that's our solution is adding a layer for secure compute. However, it's very important not to be too enterprise focused because we're very mindful that we want to put this in the hands of the, the greater community. Uh, you were talking about incentivization a while ago. Uh, we have 70% of our entire uh, digital currency economy earmarked for the public in the form of token grants uh, that we uh, will flat out uh, give to interesting research uh, projects to accelerate science innovation in that sense. And then we have another large portion uh, that we're calling minor match, uh, which is to incentivize, uh, especially early on, minor participation. So it's an algorithmic, uh, essentially, um, allocation of, of extra tokens for the people who join our network. So, which sort of dovetails into the second part of the, the discussion. Okay, so great, great, good incentive model, great purpose, uh, open source compute protocol at the core. But how do you retain 
that large minor influx. Everyone's excited. They come, they sign up. All they have to do is click a link and put in their public address and away they go. They're mining on the distributed compute protocol. We've prepared through high-touch onboarding a comprehensive list of demand ahead of time of scientific research. So electromagnetic, computational astronomy, uh, mathematical biology, uh, neuroscience. The, the next one we've just onboarded is uh, medical. And so when miners show up and connect to our network, which will unveil its, uh, the launch date uh, soon, they will be mining. There'll be a plethora of, of uh, word packages passed around to keep them excited and connected. So leveraging a large pool of supply, we will then go out and build communities saying, look, we have 20 petaflops worth of compute power. Now we're going to build up um, the already existing communities out there. We're going to bring them under the umbrella and build other packages like SciPy, NumPy, AstroPy, and then build a, have like a bounty page where people will get excited and port all the, the necessary dependencies. And then finally, the third stage is to leverage the large supply uh, and the uh, large uh, ecosystem community and rich packages developed to then build demand. So we're being very deliberate and methodical on how we're, we're, uh, we're, we're addressing the chicken and egg problem of supply and demand. Yeah, I, I very much agree with uh, with Dan because, uh, you know, if we look at uh, a project called SETI at Home, you know, uh, most of the, uh, you know, contributors, they are, you know, generally very interested in astronomy. Uh, and then uh, especially, you know, in this distributed computing model, we have to let our community, our end users know uh, what they are contributing to uh, so that uh, they don't feel like, you know, they are just, uh, you know, people or, or, you know, organization are just, you know, utilizing their uh, idle resources. So uh, I think, you know, a very good point on the community side. I think, you know, uh, everyone has to know that they are serving a purpose while, you know, getting incentivized. I, this is something that we think about a lot. How do you convince someone to mine one project over another? Like if someone has spare CPU, maybe something more powerful, they could mine Bitcoin or they could mine Anchor, right? Or they could mine Akash. And, and essentially, <laughs> it's as long as they're making money, that person should be happy. How, how do you think about kind of getting people to mine your network over someone else's? For us, uh, by reducing the resource requirement to run our, our, you know, our node, right? Thereby, you know, a user can effectively run, you know, hundreds of these nodes on a single computer by playing nice with other projects, let's put it that way, and not bring proof of work. I think, you know, our take is, uh, I think it entirely depends on business case. I think it really, you know, it depends on which projects is most likely you know, most likely to guarantee the highest return. And then I think, you know, one example that I can think on top of my head is, you know, user can ultimately get a share of what they're trying to compute. And then they are getting, they, you know, they'll be getting more uh, incentivized in this way. Uh, from our side, we're, we're leveraging ease of use of the technology. So we're, we're really going for that single click solution which we've been demonstrating. So single click along with enter your public address and you're done, you're already mining. But combined with that, the intrinsic motivation that individuals have to, to do work in support of um, innovation and uh, research and discovery, bettering society. Uh, you see this already with an example like Boeing 22.5 petaflops worth of uh, people that are literally giving away their electricity for free because they believe in the science so we're, right now we've been airdropping uh, distributed compute credits, which is our native token, um, on select whitelisted projects on the Boynt network. And uh, so that, re that represents about 5% of the network that are receiving our, our, our tokens. 
And we're very excited, actually, by the work we're doing and we put our network live, which will be uh, in the following weeks, uh, maybe short couple of months. We will be inviting people to do the same projects. We have the source code for Asteroids at Home and Rosette at Home, which will be launching on our network as uh, an element of continuity. But combined to that, the, this, this incentive to uh, this digital currency incentive, which is truly um, something that is uh, an innovation that's come on the last uh, few years that truly allow for a, a distributed compute network to be uh, incentivized on a financial level, as well as an intrinsic motivation. All of you have opted to have your own utility token. Um, and I'm curious, what is the benefit of kind of maintaining your own currency and requiring developers to hold that to use your network versus just accepting something kind of like a focal point currency like ETH? Yeah, I'll, I'd love to tackle this one, uh, Danny. So we, uh, our non-for-profit distributed compute labs is an educational non-for-profit. It, it, it reserves a large, a, a good percentage of tokens that it grants to educational research institutions. If we were simply using Ethereum, we wouldn't be able to, to make these grants. We would literally have to buy Ethereum out of pocket and then give it away. Uh, given that we're able to marshal compute resources in our own network, it gives us the ability and the flexibility to incentivize participation and give donations and put the tokens in the hands of the people who will actually be using them uh, for, for compute purposes. Also, uh, we, uh, we avoid the volatility, market volatility associated with other tokens and day trading and things like that. On networks that are not explicitly focused on utility and value creation through compute, um, the way distributed compute protocol is uh, focusing. Yeah, Dan has a great point. I mean, really gives us the flexibility to accelerate adoption and also protects us from extraneous factors when it comes to volatility so that it can isolate an ecosystem and, you know, optimize to, to you know, optimize the usability in that ecosystem. How much do tokens provide a barrier for like a Web2 traditional project to use a dis- distributed compute project instead of AWS? Like if I'm, um, you know, like a Web2 company, ABC, and I want cheaper compute, but it means that I have to know how to set up a wallet and hold and buy tokens. Does that deter me from using something new like this? So in, in our model, in the distributed compute protocol model, the beautiful thing about compute is that there is an established approximate market value for, for compute. So rather than having people monitor the value of the currency over the last 72 hours and then sort of know what to bid for the compute project, uh, we're, we're building in a function that auto-bids the market value for, for compute or auto-bids 50% above or 50% below and or some user-defined user defined, uh, user defined, uh, fraction thereof. Uh, so that will take away some of the pain associated with understanding crypto in the first place. So envision it this way, someone deploying DiskFit, right? Um, this job is well characterized. It's worth X number of core hours or core years. Uh, and that has a fixed price associated with it. So as long as they have uh, money or credits on account, it can be automatically debited. And I say that coming from a researcher's position who probably doesn't want to deal with understanding and knowing everything about digital currencies and whatnot. So we're, we're building in ease of use, not only from a, tech, a technology perspective, but also from uh, a user endpoint in terms of manipulating and bidding and placing, attaching value to the jobs they're trying to deploy. 
but you still have to hold tokens and, and have a wallet manage your private key. Another thing um, that I'm kind of curious how it will play out is say I'm a developer and I'm using um, one of your projects for compute, but I'm also using Filecoin for storage and Datacoin for a database and Cashcoin for cash. Do I have to hold all of those tokens or do I exchange on the fly? Like, is there a dev tool for that? How does that play out? I think, you know, right now there is a, a lack of flow in the, in the entire cryptocurrency uh, market. There, uh, I think, you know, centralized exchange definitely, you know, dominate the market at this moment. Uh, there hasn't been too many, uh, you know, good crypto, uh, de- you know, decentralized cryptocurrency exchange where we can ensure a good flow, say, for, for example, from Ethereum to Anchor and then Anchor to another uh, firm to Akash. So uh, in, the, in the future, you know, what we're trying to do as well, you know, we're, we're doing this minimal viable product where uh, we can uh, build wallets on our nodes. And then we're trying to uh, see how uh, different projects or different nodes with different stakes and different projects can communicate through each other. So uh, we are uh, in a, in tropical, chain interoperability is a, is a huge problem today. And we are using something called Interledger Protocol to solve some of the problems. Like we're integrating with Coil, potentially integrating with Handshake and other projects. Uh, so users doesn't have to hold different assets, but can sort of like hold one asset and still be able to interoperate with other chains, right? So that's one of the solutions we're working on. I'm pretty sure there are solutions uh, Cosmo, I mean, the uh, Cardano folks are working on too, as when it comes to interoperability. There's a lot of research, really good research happening around interoperability. I mean, there are concerns uh, right now, but I think we're excited about the future. I, I also want to m- mention, you know, I think... Ethereum had a good experiment with uh, the ERC seven twenty one token, the non fungible token. I think in in the future there are uh, you know illiquid assets and then liquid assets uh, on on the blockchain. So I think you know uh, you know I think all of us should uh, look into this more. Yeah, we've been seriously looking at it because we're not a commoditized marketplace. We're actually a free marketplace because we believe the resources providers provide have different cost structures depending on the intent and and and, and whatnot. So uh, a non-fungible token model is actually great for us. And uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning that because one can sort of like represent their resources in a non-fungible token, which is different for each sort of like each provider or each provider's resource and still be able to sort of like I've never thought about presenting compute resources as a non-fungible token. That is really cool. I have two kind of final questions for you. The first is one one of the big challenges of uh, computing on someone else's computer, like a stranger's machine, is you don't really have a great way to verify if they did the compute as intended or if they're just scamming you for money. And so how do you kind of deal with verifiability and trust? In our packages, I mean, the, the ability to embed checksums and things like that, uh, certainly that's something that's at the very top of the list. You do that first. Uh, but beyond that, uh, jobs that require, obviously, uh, multiple subtasks or slices, they'll all execute within a certain amount of time. So you can observe some of the, the behaviors of the network and comparing them against benchmarks and performances and infer or flag suspicious um, activity. For example... If a package fails a checksum, you know it's tampered with. If a package um, computes instantaneously, probably something suspicious is going on there too. And you can always, like Boink, implement the strategy where you compute packages twice, which is obviously inefficient, but you can do that for your less trusted nodes. 
one way, one of the ways we're tackling it, besides the obvious approach, which is to uh, embed, as I was saying, ways of verifying the, the data um, within the packages themselves, uh, we're structuring the pool of resources. We're building a trust, a pyramid of trust, essentially over time, where people, uh, their, their reputation scores are incremented upon successful completion of jobs. So over time, um, the the jobs that are more uh, less will be assigned to data centers, you know, tier one, two, three, four, or to the most trusted people. Jobs that are um, that 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 can tolerate fault. For example, if there's two thousand iterations in some sort of Monte Carlo process where one or two or three or five or ten even are uh, erroneous, they get thrown out anyway. So it, 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 what we can do is we can push tasks around and match them with the required level of trust and with the required level of performance as well as the required level of latency, depending on the particular job. So that there's a variety of business approaches and technical approaches to ensuring that uh, the work actually gets done. Like I mentioned earlier, we're also implementing a secure network overlay for the high-powered uh, users doing medical, military, intelligence, um, and, and otherwise, uh, which takes that to the, to the next level. Yeah, so uh, you know, currently a lot of distributed network relies on you know uh, providing redundancy uh, to verify the work uh, the, maybe the correctness uh, or the proof of uh, uh, doing work I think we're leveraging uh, IntelliGX. Uh, we create a lot um, enclave uh, and then we communicate uh, directly with Intel you know which in in some sense uh, is a, a centralization I have to say and then we use the IIS service for uh, remote attestation uh, and then in in the process the the keys are all encrypted and then you know recently Danny mentioned about for shadow attack uh, I also want to say something about this uh, I think regarding this attack definitely Intel has already pr- provided a patch usually what security researchers do is uh, they wait until uh, the Intel has released the patch uh, and then they they will release this uh, this news. And uh, second of all, uh, I think hacker must have uh, you know control uh, a computer in order to to attack at SGX, and then it's very hard. Um, there will be no incent- in, in well, it, it will be hard to incentivize, especially financial incentivize them to uh, to attack in single SGX because the uh, the process is very long. It's very hard, and then and then it will be hard hard to get a control of a large network uh, of uh, SGX enabled CPUs. Uh, third of all, I think Anchor will be uh, using, you know, you know, definitely leverage some, uh, you know, mathematical probability to ensure that uh, even though, you know, some, some nodes are compromised, so able to uh, run our uh, consensus protocol very smoothly on the network. Uh, how do you think about which hardware to support in your network? Like, how do you think about whether it's more interesting to be able to run on uh, servers sitting on a data center versus end-user laptops and phones? Last question. So, I do have one point on the verification problem. And <laughs> verification, uh, verification is very hard to do, like both of you uh, agree. And it's easier if you have a smart contract, it's easier to do formal verification for, you know, the higher you get go up in the stack and the lower you get, it's very hard, right? But we are working, um, uh, we're still actively researching on a new uh, cryptographic function called, uh, it's a memory hard cryptographic hash function where, and it's, it's a metric, so the uh, prover doesn't need to have the same amount of memory. The verifier 
uh, the program needs to have X amount of memory and the verifier doesn't need to have the same one memory, but they can compute a hash and they can match. So in that way, it gives some sort of a guarantee that the uh, prover has the resources necessary to to run the job, right? And you have, uh, for time hard functions, you have you obviously have Bitcoin, which, which implemented that. So there are various uh, cryptographic functions we can take from the real crypto world and apply to, to verify compute uh, that, that's ne- needed. So well, how... On the question of how important is it to run on a data center versus a home computer, depending on the use case, right? So if you're doing sequential jobs, such as long-running jobs, such as websites and whatnot, you need certain guarantees in terms of bandwidth latency, memory, and whatnot. That is not quite possible run, to run on a home computer. But whereas if you're executing a bad job, especially heavily catalyzable jobs, it's certainly possible to do to, to have a very diverse set of resources, right? So that's our take on it. Uh, Danny, we want it all. We will deploy our jobs, our JavaScript jobs on any device. Uh, we can do black hole physics on fridges with the screens built in and JavaScript interpreters. Uh, we can deploy on tablets, PS4, self-driving cars, whatever can run JavaScript, can run our jobs. And we distribute the type of jobs, the size of jobs, according to the performance requirements and security requirements to these different machines. Some compute requires physical security on top of just uh, pure performance. And so for them, definitely data center or telecommunications uh, center, a centric type environment to, to do this execution. And for the lower edges of the, the problems, we push those to the, the smaller devices. So we were, we're targeting, it's a total total environment, total ecosystem uh, target for, for, uh, for our, our network. And then just to kind of wrap up, any closing thoughts or how do people try out any public uh, like testnet or beta that you have out? So Akash, uh, as of Monday, we will have, we, we are giving public access to a testnet. Uh, and a way to access that is by visiting akash.network slash testnet. And we have a registration process. And you'll have the instructions as to how to get started there. And we're really excited about it. Right now, we have about half a terabyte of memory on the testnet. So that can run up to about 1,000 static and 10,000 static. And we expect about 1,000 dynamic uh, applications. Uh, I also want to uh, point out the, the future of hardware development. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny that you ask, uh, you know, the, because, you know, Foreshadow was, you know, just published. But uh, I think in, in the future, you know, we are anchor, uh, we are trying to uh, build a hybrid model with uh, not only um, SGX attestation but also uh, duplicated computation, just for the for the sake of security, and um, and then you know for for Intel, you know they can open up uh, the attestation process so that uh, it doesn't have to be uh, that centralized. So uh, in my opinion, we believe uh, TE solution uh, it is likely to happen in the future. Danny, we're focusing on uh, the closed beta right now. We'll be announcing the open beta pretty soon where we're going to invite people to start mining projects on our network um, as early as potentially September. Um, But in the short strokes, in the coming weeks, we're actually going to build the demo right into our homepage uh, where people will be able to work on projects. They won't be earning distributed compute credit yet, but that is uh, the, uh, once we turn on the switch, uh, that's... uh, uh, let's say September, October timeframe. We we look forward to welcoming miners into yeah. our community. We are yeah. We spent the last uh, two to three months uh, developing our minimal viable product. Uh, uh, and, and I'm confident to say that uh, we we're ready to you know launch our testnet in one to two months. Uh, definitely 
Meanwhile, we are actively researching on uh, on Trust Zone on uh, all of the Android phones, and then uh, we're trying to uh, do a quick prototype of it uh, to test our concept. Awesome. And closing thoughts, I think, uh, you know, it's amazing people are focusing on decentralized and cloud. I think the problem is not, problem definitely exists. And I think the future, we're going to see protocols working with other protocols, like what you guys are doing, each one focusing on different markets and different sort of like approaches on how to solve this problem. I'm really excited that so many people are actually focusing in, uh, on this problem. And I think that's the only way we can take on the centralized system there is today, which is yeah, an oligopoly. Yeah, and then I think uh, our market uh, targets are you know geographically distributed. Uh, for example, uh, I think we are more leaning towards to explore uh, the potential of Chinese market. Uh, while you know, of course, I, I think uh, Dan is is is, is definitely uh, um, you know targeting the the, the Canada and the U.S. markets. Um, so it will be very interesting to see the, the distributed com- computing platform develop in different sorts of uh, uh, environment where um, there are different economic models and then different, you know, um, I guess even I, I, I should say government regime. So it's very interesting. It's awesome. Hey, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you guys. This has been thanks, fantastic. Eric. Okay. Take care, everybody. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.